couple things I wanted to bring to your attention. Uh, you, when you came in, you should have gotten a play sheet. If you're one of our regulars, let this be a reminder to you every week of um, these really important things going on around the church. Explore, discover, grow. Explore, discover, grow. That is a great uh, little habit to have that moving around in your mind all the time. At Rio, uh, we explore. We explore the Christian faith. Uh, we ask our questions, no matter how difficult they are or if they're born from cynicism or from pain. Uh, we come together in a thing we call Alpha. It's actually been done all over the world. Uh, over 29 people have gone through Alpha and, uh, worldwide. And um, we do it here at our church several times a year. The next one will be coming up in September. That sounds like a long way away, but it really isn't. Yes? Did I say 29? 29 people worldwide. <laughs> Over the last 30 years, almost one lucky person a year. Thanks, hon. I did in the first service, too. I thought I got it right. All right, okay. So, uh, Alpha is a place where you can come together. We, have a, we sit down and have a meal, and we really just have these little collaborative conversations around these topics that are on your heart. You kind of drive the agenda of that. We come together, we eat, uh, we watch a, a video about something sort of from a Christian perspective, but then we sit down and talk about it. It really has been a great, great, great uh, resource for people who are just seeking, curious, even cynical. So that's coming up in September. The next one will start. Uh, maybe I just described you and you should come, or maybe I described a friend uh, that you would love to bring. You can start thinking about how to invite them uh, in a way that uh, they'll be excited to come. You can come with them. That's explore. The second thing is discover. Uh, we here at Rio uh, want to give you a way to discover who we are um, as a culture, uh, what we believe, all those things. We do that through something we call starting point, which was a, is a bit of a journey in, into our community. Uh, it's a membership process. Um, uh, whereby you uh, walk into our culture. Uh, we just had a meet and greet between services to kind of give an overview of that th this day, but you can also go online. Uh, we do that once a month. Um, we have a meet and greet between services, but you can also go online and you can learn all about Starting Point by just going to reovisachurch.com and putting starting, line in, uh, starting Point in the, uh, in the search. Learn about that. And then we also grow. You know, there is nothing neutral about life or the Christian faith, you're kind of either going forward or backwards. So uh, it's very important that we intentionally grow. We have an amazing spiritual formation pastor here uh, named Sam Kassen-Smed. Every Wednesday night, he does a brilliant teaching uh, right um, on the other side of that wall in the Ingram Center uh, Theater. And uh, we have that every Wednesday night at 6.30 p.m. We're walking right now through uh, spiritual disciplines, sort of getting your life on track, building, building that trellis of habits in your life that help you to grow. Uh, he does deep dives into ancient truth. He also has a podcast that uh, is called Out of Water. And he and some of our ministry team come together and really talk not only about ancient truths and scripture, but also about how those things apply to contemporary issues, things that we're dealing with right now. Really, really good. I encourage you to, to get that on your, your phone or wherever you listen to your podcast. And the last thing, oh, what have we here? A little feature. Um, we pulled a fast one on our service producer, Mary Gunlock. Are you still in here, Mary, or did you flee? Did you escape? Here's the deal. Mary, uh, our amazing service producer, and so much more than that, has uh, been given the opportunity to go and be one of two people a year selected to the master's program at Florida State for theater direction. And she's going to be heading up there. This is her last Sunday before she goes off to school. And we pulled a fast one. We printed a bogus play sheet, but then we printed a new one with her on it. So talks a little bit about Mary down at the bottom. There's some pictures there. And we love you. We're so glad to support you in this. We'll look forward to seeing you back when you're done. But thank you for everything you've done, Mary. We really appreciate you.
So today we're going to talk about a feast. You see the communion table there? We're going to end with a feast today. Hopefully, maybe uh, you'll take this feast in a way that you never have. You know, really, Sunday morning, that's what it is. You're invited to a feast. A feast that is a foretaste of things to come. And you may not know this, but we plan the feast months in advance, weeks in advance, all throughout the week before we labor over it. I grew up in a church that's very much into the intellect, very much into biblical study, as well it should be, but maybe to a fault in that we missed the feast. And we developed this idea, maybe you grew up this way, that the main course of the Sunday morning is the message. That the preacher preaches the message, and that's what we're there for. And everything else is just a nice-to-have prelude, postlude. Maybe I like it, maybe I don't. I, you know, I can't to be selected. But the main course is the feast. Well, let me, the, is the men, minister's message. Let me tell you something. Ministers don't preach. Ministers speak. God preaches. And God doesn't just preach in the confines of that 30 minutes with that one person who is just as sinful as you are, and that's real. He preaches through the entire service. He preaches from when you walk in the door till you walk out. He preaches to you every step you take. The question is how you receive that and if you're listening to that. You enter in every Sunday into a feast And there are people who volunteer to open the doors and be there for you so that there's hospitality as you come into the feast. And the temperature is controlled, sometimes too cold for you. And all of these things, the way it's lit, everything is to welcome you to a feast. You come in and there's little hors d'oeuvres everywhere. There's a picture on that screen back there that's thought through every week based on what we're going to be talking about. It's relevant to the message. Little things here and there, the pre-service countdown. Today, that was actually, those were images from a feast that my family and I had that was a vacation to Colorado. It was the greatest feast I ever had that probably made me lose five pounds because we were climbing in the mountains. We were doing all these things. It was a feast of the eyes and the sentences, sent, uh, senses. It was even this, you know, this push through fatigue to get to these unbelievable, beautiful vistas and meadowy gardens and everything else. If you missed it, you missed the hors d'oeuvres, you see. And so today we come to a feast, the main course, not the message. The main course sits here before us, the body and blood of Christ. And so it's very appropriate that on this day that we come to this feast, we talk about this voice of reason, this ancient wisdom that is about our appetites, the things we crave. And so we all have to do something here because as soon as we hear that the church guy is going to talk about appetites, we jump into one camp. We go over here with the prudes and the teetotalers or we go over here with the hedonists and they're, woo, living life. Eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow I'm going to be dead. And we just, we've already thought this through. We're already convinced. And then we've already made our decisions. So I want to do is break you out of that for a minute. And I thought no better person to break us out of our corners than... The quintessential hedonist hero, 53% of America's favorite Avenger, Tony Stark. Some of you are appalled (laughs) at the debauchery of this man over here. Some of you are over here. I love that guy. He's so cool. Just the way that he drinks his martini, that champagne and the clink and the toast. It was probably a really good bottle. The way he's at the same time so, so free and, and, and he just doesn't care. 
And yet, he's, he has his sensitive moments. He's both, he's both aspirational, inspirational, and relatable as a human being. We love Tony Stark, the genius, billionaire, playboy, philanthropist. That's how he describes himself, by the way. Fearless, above the fray. He knows what he wants and he takes it. We love him. And we don't just love him because he's a genius and because he's wealthy and because he's a philanthropist. It's that playboy part that lures us in. There's just this fearlessness to him. We want to escape with him. Just at least I do. So the way that Tom is a fanatic about Lord of the Rings, I'm kind of a fanatic about the Avengers. And I love the Lord of the Rings too. And he loves the Avengers. But... I'm pretty nerdy about the Avengers, and I have actually listened to interviews uh, from Robert Downey Jr., the, the one who plays that character, Tony Stark. And the truth is, Jr. says, Robert Downey Jr. says, who lived out this life, basically, with a severe addiction to substances. He says, the truth about Tony Stark is that inside he is utterly miserable. He's totally insecure. He's confused about he, who he is. He doesn't know how to find real significance. He's at one time beautifully and exquisitely made in the image of God. But he's broken. He has everything and he has everyone and he feels nothing and he is alone. And he keeps searching for that place where joy and peace and rest reside. And he's looking in all the wrong places. The whole arc of the story of the 21 movie Avengers series is whether or not this man, the hedonist hero, Tony Stark, can die to himself and give his life for those he loves. That's the tension of the whole story. That's what it's about. Tony has appetites. He's working them through. So there was an ancient Tony Stark uh, in fact, Tony Stark was no match for this man, King Solomon, the king of Israel who wrote this book, Proverbs. King Solomon uh, was everything that Tony Stark was, but on steroids. He was a genius. God offered him anything he wanted. God said, what do you want, Solomon? You're going to be the king of my people. What do you want? I'll give you anything. Genie in a bottle. And he said, give me your wisdom. And he got it. And he is known to this day as perhaps the wisest human being besides Jesus who has ever lived. Billionaire. Okay, so Forbes magazine had a little fun and they decided to assess the net worth of Tony Stark, the fictional character. They came up with $9.3 billion. He was a little bit ahead of Bruce Wayne, Batman, who was $6.9 billion. Solomon's real net worth? $2 trillion. $2 trillion. Philanthropist. Well, when you ask God to give you wisdom, then what happens is the fruit of your wisdom is a love for hurting people, a, a passion for justice and mercy. And Solomon wrote some of the most beautiful, eloquent treatises there has ever been on caring for the poor, being champions for the oppressed. In fact, at the end of his Proverbs that he wrote to his son who was going to become king, he warned him against drunkenness because he said kings must remain sober so that they don't forget to carry the cause of the 
downtrodden. But playboy. He was a playboy like the world has never seen. So in Deuteronomy, which was a book that God gave to the Israelites before they had a king, they, he gave them instructions on what to warn their king against. There were three. The first one was don't amass uh, an extensive army. Don't amass an extensive army. So of course what Solomon did is he went out and he uh, recruited 4,000 chariots and 12,000 horses. State-of-the-art technology. Think cruise missiles and stealth fighters. The second warning was don't amass ex uh, um, um, extensive wealth. Don't overdo it. And I already told you he's worth $2 trillion. He took in 25 tons of gold per year for the better part of 40 years. And that was just a small part of his wealth. And then maybe the biggest playboy move of all, the third thing that God warned Israel against is don't let your king take many wives. And so Solomon the playboy went out and took 700 and 300 concubines. You know what those were? Mistresses. Sort of slaves with benefits, if you know what I mean. And that's not a joke. That's as horrible as it actually sounds. So he had it all. He took it all. And so, toward the end of his life, he wrote another book called Ecclesiastes. And here's how we know that he was a playboy, if that wasn't enough. He said, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. All of it was vanity, a striving after the wind. There was nothing gained under the sun. And so he writes this book of wisdom to his son who will be king. And he says things like this. Do not be among the drunkards or among the gluttonous eaters of meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty and slumber will clothe them with rags. Wine is a mocker. Listen to this. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink a brawler. And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. And then this king who has waxed poetical and he's spoken very kingly throughout this book of Proverbs comes to the very last chapter and he exposes himself before his son as not just his king and his father, but his daddy. And he pleads with him. He says, my son, what are you doing, son of my womb, son of my vows? Don't give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. It's not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Now, that's not the voice of a man who has been successful in this part of his life, is it? This is a man who has tried all of those things and been an abject failure and been left empty, broken, bankrupt. This is a man who's tried all the appetites as ends in themselves, as means of escape, as distractions from his first love. He's turned them all into mistresses into whose arms he has sought this peace and joy and rest and been left alone 
He's been unfaithful to his first love and distracted from his mission, and now he's crying out to save his son. Give strong drink to the one who's dying, he says. Wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge rightly, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, my son, my son, you are not hopeless. You are not dying. You are not suffering. You are not poor. You are hope, my son. So stay sober. So we know all this. This particular topic was probably the easiest one to transfer from old time to new time. You know why? Because we all have experience in this. If you grew up in the United States, if you grew up in middle school or high school or college, you've been around this. You've been around people who just let themselves go into their appetites and maybe you've done the same. We know it. We've experienced it when our appetites get away from us and get, get the best of us. So so we know all this. Why is it so hard just to listen to Solomon, who's been the ultimate Tony Stark, who's lived the dream and it turned into a nightmare? Well, the most obvious answer is that we're sinful. We're sinful. We lack self-discipline. We, we, we lack willpower and all those things, you know, your parents told, told you about. But here's the problem. That's just not enough. That's not enough to to put these appetites in their proper perspective, what it does is it calls us to descend into this tedious debate about how much to drink, if at all, about how many pieces of pizza turns you into a glutton, about, about how much money or stuff is too much or about how far we can go. It's so small and it's so insufficient to deal with these powerful passions that we have. So here's the thing you need to know if you study the whole counsel of Scripture. And by the way, this is why it's so important never to form your thinking, your philosophy, your worldview by cherry-picking some verses. Typically what you'll do is you'll find verses that agree with you, with your, your existing proclivities. But if you study the whole counsel of Scripture, there's something that just manifests itself profoundly. You can't escape it. You were made for a feast. You were made for a feast. You were made for these things. You were given these appetites, appetites and desires and they became corrupted. The psalmist in Psalm 104 says this of God. He says, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring food forth from the earth and wine because you're thirsty. No, to gladden the heart of men. Oil to make his face shine, to make him beautiful, bread to strengthen his heart, not just to carve up. In Isaiah 25, this is a spectacular prophecy. Uh, Isaiah was a prophet, God spoke through him, and now he's talking to Israel after they've wrecked it. They've been embroiled in civil war. The reality is the reason they fell away and were overtaken was because they turned from God and turned in on themselves in pursuit of their appetites. But now they've reached a place of brokenness. They've reached what we in addiction recovery would call rock bottom. And God sees their repentance. He sees their humility. And here's what he says he's going to do. He says, I'm going to throw you a feast. 
He says, and it's going to be an eternal feast. And oh, there's going to be food, but it's not just going to be any food. It's going to be rich and full of marrow. And there's going to be wine, but it's not just going to be any wine. It's going to be fine, aged wine. Oh, what a feast we will have. And at that feast, I will once and for all swallow up this death that consumes you. And I'll wipe away your tears so you don't need to drink them away. You don't need to eat them away. You don't need to cover them over with Instagram filters or status or money or material things or beauty or whatever it is that you need to hide behind. You don't have to do that anymore. So this is, an, as I study the whole counsel of scripture, I turn to the sexual appetites and I went, of course, to Song of Solomon, which Solomon also wrote. This was basically a love letter inspired by God. My daughters and I tried to find a passage that we could read out loud to you in front of your children. We failed. You should read it sometime. A love letter inspired by God. You'll blush. And you'll get weak in the knees at the thought that a being could love you so intimately and freely and recklessly. It makes Tony Stark look like a wallflower. So here's the thing. I've been around a while and there's two kinds of people, I think, in this world, more or less. There are those of us who have our cocktails and our decadent delicacies and, our, and explore our intimate fantasies and we chase after our adventures with this notion that God is the prude that he's the buzzkill, and that we have to keep our distance or he'll ruin our fun. Some of us actually believe that we know better how to be free than the one who created freedom. And food and wine and sex and adventure and every great thing you've ever had or done. You consider yourself a foodie, a wine person. You're swirling the wine and you're smelling it and you're going, oh yeah, that, and then God's going, yeah, it was 1992. That grape's name was Bill. I promise you, he knows way more than you do about the things you think that you have to hide from him because he's such a prude. But then there's this other kind of person The one who drowns him or herself in the appetites. The one who uses those appetites to drown in securities and anxieties and failures. You think you're ugly. You think you're homely inside and out. You're just not enough. Here's the thing. You can't see yourself the way God sees you. And so here you are wound up in your mind in your insecurities or your arrogance or your distractions or whatever it is and you're like, well, you're all over the place and God in the middle of that grabs your hand and he takes a knee and he says, marry me. Because he sees through every speck of it to who you are. The feast he's preparing for you is a wedding feast. You remember what Jesus' first miracle was? Churchy people know this because we're like, ooh, it's scandalous. He turned water into wine at a wedding. He turned water into wine at a wedding. It was a big deal. There was this huge social faux pas. The wedding was supposed to go on. For, the party for a wedding back then went on for three days. They were out of wine in two days. It was a disaster in the making. It was going to be humiliating for the groom. 
Huge blunder. So here's what happened. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, his mother went to him and said, they don't have any wine. And Jesus knew exactly what that meant. But he said to her, woman, what, do I, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to his servants, she probably gave him the look, you know, yeah, yeah, whatever, do whatever he says. And so he goes to work. Now there were six stone jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, now draw some of it out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who were drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, in other words, in other words when they're loaded, they bring out the poor wine but you have kept the good wine until now. Have you ever sat on that for a minute? Have you ever sat on the fact that this was Jesus' first miracle? The first miracle in his public ministry was to save a party. And not just any party, a wedding party. Why did he do that? Why would he make that his first sign of who he was? Well, here's why. Because he came to earth to tell this story. Do you understand that? A groom courting his bride and rescuing her from the devastation of her infidelities so that she could wear white once again and be beauty, be the beauty that she was made to be. That was the story that Jesus came to tell. Now, Jesus knew that through that courtship, he would have to travel over suffering, through blood and tears. That's why he said, my hour has not yet come. It's not that he was going, mom, you know, I'm not supposed to start my public ministry till next Thursday. And then she went, honey. And he went, okay, that's not it. I kind of always thought it was something like that. No, this was the greatest strategist in the history of the world. Every move he made was perfect. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was speaking of his suffering. My hour has not yet come, he said. And then instantly he made the wine because he knew what he was doing. He was feeling the foretaste of the, depra the, the deprivation that he would have to endure to marry this beautiful bride. That is you. So then, fast forward to the very end of his ministry. Sure enough, so it was on the night before he died, Jesus met his disciples. Where? You remember? At a feast. At the Passover dinner, which, by the way, was a big party and the kids were running around and there was tons of food and wine. Ceremonially, they were required to drink at least three glasses of wine. And at that feast... In the middle of the ceremony, he took the bread that they had eaten their whole lives and he took the wine that they had drunk their whole lives and he said, I am this bread. I am this wine. Feast on me. Come to me to let your hair down, 
to unwind, to take the edge off, to break the tension, to leave your troubles behind, to find your confidence, be free from your anxieties and your life stresses and insecurities once and for all at this table. Come to my feast. Better stated, return to the true feast. Now, if this ended right here and I just said, let's pray and take communion, I'd be as depressed as you. But that's not how divine comedies end. They end with a wedding. We go to Revelation, the Apostle John, given a vision of the end times, and what does he see? Then I heard what, came, what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. Have you ever been to a wedding that was outside? And you were way far off walking toward it. You couldn't even see it yet. But what happens? You start to hear. You start to hear the people talking and laughing and buzzing. You start to see a groomsman or a bridesmaid rushing over to get in place. You start hearing the clack of the glasses and all these things. The celebration begins. And so it was with him. And he said, um, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the, is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The end of history. Your appetites are not to be forsaken and they're not to be escapes. They are to be foretastes. They are to draw you into focus. They are to help you remember your freedom, not escape from your slavery. They are God's gift to you to bring captive, to pull into line so that you might experience the richness of the life that he has given you. For better or for worse, even in your suffering, knowing that this feast awaits. Let's pray.